Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains themes of crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of The Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to The Batuta Advocate radio show, recording live here from the Diamantina Shire. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall and Errol Parker. How you going, Errol? I'm good, mate. It's finally a fine Friday up here in the Diamantina. We've had uh, a lot of wet weather up here. There's uh, a lot of the rivers up here are at capacity, so it's good that it's all about to flow down to New South Wales and get out of our hair. And uh, big news around the country this week, uh, particularly in the top end. You wouldn't read about it. But the Northern Territory Government have decided to raise the age of criminal responsibility to... Wait for it. Twelve years old. How generous of them! It before it was ten. So uh, we're no longer locking up ten and eleven-year-old kids, uh, which is great news. But I also think uh, you know, twelve-year-olds aren't even teenagers yet either. I think we've got a long way to go. We've spoken about this a bit before in Batuta, particularly in Queensland top end. You know, the issue of youth crime is a real issue. And uh, for anyone up that way listening who think we're out of touch, don't worry. We've been to these towns. We know that it. Fucking, it can get pretty rowdy in the wild north, but we also know there's a lot of uh, a lot of issues uh, surrounding all of this, and youth crime isn't the start of the problem, but it does. It is the start of a system, and today's guest, I, I guess, has some expertise in in talking about that system. Is a product of that system at one point of his life. He's gone on to do many, many, many things since his time at Her Majesty's Hotel, or His Majesty's Hotel nowadays. Thank you for joining us, Russell Manser. Thanks, uh, Errol, and thanks, Clancy, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the uh, program. Now, Russ, we want to talk to you. You're, um, we've seen you uh, on Australian Story. We've seen you on the uh, Mark Burris podcast, and we've actually heard your own podcast that you're running nowadays, which is um, up and running with some big-name guests, the Stick Up podcast. Do you want to kind of give us a little rundown on your podcast and why it's different to you know any of the other ones we might listen to? I'm obviously hooked. But you know, there's uh, it's a bit different. You're not talking about NBA, that's for sure. You've got you've you've lived a completely different life to a lot of people out there who are you know in this space. Yeah, well, the stick up comes from my uh, former career in the banking industry, in particular <laughs> the withdrawals department, uh, which allowed me to dress in balaclavas and uh, cheap clothing. That was disposable. <laughs> yeah, well, my podcast, The Sticker, like we try to get a, an array of uh, uh, guests on. And, and, you know, the common theme is how people overcome adversity. And, yep. um, you know, we've interviewed abuse survivors, professional criminals, businessmen. You know, we got Dr. Charlie Teo coming up shortly. A lot of sportsmen like Jeff Fennick, uh, Shannon O'Connell's coming on the show. Uh, Danny Green's with us next week. We want to know what it like. In particular, I think there's a great analogy with sports people that get sat on their ass. And what do you? What does it take to overcome that adversity? Get back up and uh, and win. Yeah, I mean you, you're a prime example. This is not necessarily in the sporting arena, though. I've never have seen you in the ring. I haven't seen you on the on the pebbles either, Russ. I, I reckon you probably you could stand eight. Um, I'm sure you've had too many times in your life. Can you tell us in this metaphor? I want to talk about your adversity. I know you've, uh, you know, you obviously run an organisation that helps people that are in a similar position to you. The voice of the survivor. You're a great advocate for abuse survivors, and you're also a great advocate for uh, ex-cons. 
but your adversity, you can put it down to a number. You know, you can actually put it down to how, you know, the time you did. I just want to kind of uh, talk about that now. How old were you when you first kind of entered the, the prison system? And uh, h- how long in and out do you reckon you've, uh, you've done in those kind of facilities? Look, I, I first uh, went to the notorious Derek Boys Home, which is the subject of a 60-minute story where there was a lot of abuse. I didn't escape that abuse. I done an apprenticeship on how to steal Porsches when I was at um, Derrick and, yep. and, uh, and uh, I got my trade. I later stole a Porsche at the age of 16, got in a police chase, and the judge in his right mind thought it would be a great idea to house me at Long Bay Prison with the worst degenerates in the country at the time and thought it would be a great way to deter me from our future reoffending. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. He's um, Mr. Nos- judge Nostradamus got it wrong that time and... Um, and, uh, you know, which led to me spending 23 years in the penal system with serious problems, serious underlying issues of abuse, which I, I covered with uh, serious drug addiction. And I had to really escalate my criminal behaviour to support that drug addiction. So, I mean, the, the whole lot of factors there, and as you point out, and I'm sure as you um, would be aware in your time in prison, that a lot of the issues uh, that land people in prison could be treated uh, without prisons. I want to kind of talk about those stints outside of jail, how, like, were you part of this? We've all seen Two Hands. We all know what Sydney uh, used to look like, according to the TV screens. Blue Murder, Two Hands, Underbelly. Was it the Wild West, and, and were you riding on horseback in the Wild West? <laughs> well, it was sort of romantic in those days, you know what I mean? You were, uh, like, bank robbers, which was, was my trade, uh, was sort of held in sort of ned kelly-esque sort of esteem you know what i mean people sort of i don't know where where i grew up bank robbers were when they come home from prison they were treated like return war heroes yeah and um you know what i mean there were people that to be looked up even in the 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 jail hierarchy bank robbers were at the top of the chain and that's what i wanted to be and um and that wasn't necessarily like, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of... i never seen... Where I grew up, I've uh, never seen the, the working man sort of go too far in life because they were pre-union days where people were being treated as slaves, you know? Where was this? This was Mount Druitt? Mountie County, as they call it? Mountie County. It's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there, so they say. <laughs> and, and But, um, you know, um, yeah, sure. Working-class, blue-collar suburb where... People either you either worked in a, in a in a factory. If you got a trade, you were a very lucky man or woman. Um, but um, you know, a lot of people didn't like. We got a pretty high crime rate out that way, and um, you know, I think people took. I don't know. People took pride in being a good crim. Russell, I um, I just want to talk about your first bank robbery. How did you pump yourself up for it? I mean, like it's not something that most people do every day. I mean. What led you to finding yourself in that bank that day? Oh, well, um, it was a funny thing. I was working for my brother, and my mate was working for Telstra, and he had form for robbing banks. I'd met him in jail. And I said, mate, you feel like robbing a bank? And he said, I'll be there with bells on. And that's <laughs> basically the crux of it. And uh, so we uh, went to Salvation Army shop and bought a, a knife for about $4. It was a better investment than crypto because <laughs> the return on it was about 17000 And um <laughs> And that was in minutes, you know. Uh, so, um, 
Yeah, I just rocked in. Uh, you know, like, I, look, I'd, when I'd previously been in jail for two years and I'd picked the brains of a lot of bank robbers and, you know, I sort of, I looked up to them guys because it was romanticised, you know, these this really good living, going in and buying whatever you want, driving what car, whatever you want, you know, getting the girls, getting the jewellery, getting it all, having that lifestyle. And that lifestyle really appealed to me because it was fast. It was, I don't know, it was Hollywood-esque, mm-hmm, so to yeah. speak, rockstar-esque. And uh, it appealed to me, and I just wanted to give it a crack because I'd never lived like that. And uh, I, my my family, we were battlers. We were really bad. We took them four years to pay off the debts on 180B. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that was the type of thing. We'd go to the beach and take packed lunches and sort of stuff like that. And I didn't want to live like that. You know, I didn't want to live like I wanted some of the good stuff, and uh, I thought that was going to be the way I was going to do it. Funny thing about that bank, you know, we robbed that bank, and I got more shoes than Imelda Marcos. So I, um, I'm, a, I'm a, fan, a fan of collecting shoes. and. Yeah. Um, so we went to park. That bank was the Commonwealth Bank at Gordon on the northern beach, on the northern yeah. door, and went to park the car at Liverpool. As we parked it, there's coppers running us everywhere, and where we parked the car, a bank had just been robbed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sydney. <laughs> yeah. And they're running past us. It was like, we won the lottery, and I'm like, hey, I'll just get out of here. <laughs> tell, tell us about the adrenaline. Tell us about the feeling. Well, adrenaline and people talk, I was talking about it recently, people talk about, you know, jumping out of airplanes and I said, well, robbing a bank's like fucking jumping out of an airplane on coke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's that, it's like, it's really amplified, it's really, and, and take in mind, in the days I was robbing banks, Roger Rogerson and his crew were running around shooting people. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you come out of that bank and you don't know if your head's going to explode like a pumpkin. Yeah. I used to put the forearm over my head and I'm thinking, you know, that might save the day, but... um. <laughs> A 12-gun shotgun, I have a lot to say about that, I reckon. And um, Do you feel these skill sets come out of you? I mean, when you were doing that, I know you did a few bakes. Did you feel this? You know, you walk into a room. Th- these are skills that people could use in non-criminal activities, mind you. Walking into a room, telling people where to stand, telling people to cooperate, telling people how it's going to happen. Um, did you feel those kind of uh, like a natural skill set or was it all all in one motion? Look, you know what? I, I was always told by really good bank robbers to keep the place calm, right? Because the last thing you want in one of those situations is people panicking because that's when things go wrong. And it was just one of those cases, the communication, it was the tone of the voice. And, it's, and I think that's carried on in how I, I'm really careful these days in business myself, my tone of my voice. And the tone of your voice in a bank in a high intensity situation can be crucial. So, you know, it was always soft. It was always like, okay, I'm here. No one's going to get hurt. Um, I'm, the money's not yours. Don't, no one's got to be silly. I'm just going to get in. I'm going to be. I'm going to be here for 10, 15 seconds. I'm gone out of your life. You'll never see me again. And um, it was that calmness that I sort of brought to. And, and you know, and to be described in the papers after that as the gentleman bank robber. I, look, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, I've heard you tell this yarn before about how many banks were getting robbed each day in Sydney and Melbourne to the point where they had like armed robbery units. I'm not sure if they still have them. Armory um, squads, yeah. They, yeah, they were, yeah, and you know what? Those guys were fucking pirates, I tell you. And <laughs> they were hoping to catch you so they could rob you. Yeah. And that's what they did. And I, I'm pretty sure they were letting blokes do it so they could get them with the cash and rob them. And, um, you know, I'll tell you a funny thing about bank robbers. You know, you, you would rob a bank. And say, for instance, you get 50000 In the paper, the next day it reported that 90000 went missing. Going, That's the old bank manager pocketing the leftovers, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
I was just about to ask you, Russ, how you said that um, other prisoners used to hold a bank robber in such a high regard. How did the cops used to treat the bank robbers? Well, the cops in the stick-ups, stick-up squads, I've actually made friends with Gary Jublin, who was on the squad, uh, stick-up squads, and maybe at the time when I was doing my uh, work, and he was he was sort of in that police force, they were classed as rock stars, and so were we, so you know what I mean? It was one big uh, rock concert, basically. Yeah, Cowboys yeah. and Indians. Yeah. yeah, they were, they were the rock stars, you know. Was there ever any, we got him, we finally got the gentleman? Was there any, you know, come down with a, get a photograph, Al Capone style, when, when you blokes would get caught? <laughs> oh, look, on the last one, that last bank robbery, I got pinched. I, the party was over, but I kept on turning up. And I, I robbed my last <laughs> bank at fucking 2014 on the Gold Coast. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's eight years ago. Yeah, that's not long ago, yeah. Russ. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, I know a lot's happened in your life since then, and uh, you know, and the reform, and we, we, we've seen it in your work, and in obviously your storytelling and your, your podcast and and everything you work, your advocacy. But tell me, in two thousand and fourteen, the year the Rabbitohs won the grand final, the mighty Rabbitohs, how much cash was there to get out of a bank? Now, I would have made more money on the dole that year. That's true. That's yeah. true. I, yeah. You know, on that last one I got, I, the last one I robbed, I got ten thousand dollars. I got my head punched in. They done macrame with my arms and legs, and told me they were going to save my life. And um, look, you know, the, and or, the funny thing about that was, um, you know, I got arrested. I went up to Southport Watch House and I had all these young, eager coppers coming in. And in this, in a, in the cells at Southport, there's blinds, and I keep seeing these blinds going down. It was like the first time they'd ever seen a Tasmanian tiger. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get many of them on the Goldie anymore. <laughs> no, and, and it was one. Of, it was just funny, and um, it was funny because it was, it was a sort of a scene out of a movie. And um, they've pulled me in. There's all these about five or six young coppers standing around, and and they're saying to me, "Mate, you know, do a record of interview." And there was an old copper sitting in the corner, bald headed bloke, rolling his eyes as soon as he like he was. I think it was, <laughs> I think he was a bit embarrassed at the eagerness of them, you know. And they go, oh, mate, do a record of interview. It would be the best thing you do. And a record of interview entails getting you to admit what you've done. And and I just looked at him and I looked at him and I said, mate, I've never seen someone moonwalk back into prison saying that the record of interview was the best thing I've ever done. And I said, I'll fucking tell you what, it ain't happening today. <laughs> In your story, you know, of kind of um, it's a strange story this came up, there was a moment in between your, your, your stints, as you said, you did, you know, close to 25 years 23, I've done 23 all up, yeah. 23, three different states. You know, you, you got pinched in the Territory, you got pinched down south. There was a moment where you kind of – there was a clearing. There was an eye of the storm, I'd say, in your in your kind of criminal career. And uh, I think this is quite interesting because it actually does speak to recovery and how, um, you know, and how you've actually – you know, it's, 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 it's an ongoing thing, you know. And there was there was an eye of the storm where you, you weren't about that life for how many years? Yeah. Six years. I stayed out of prison. I got out of jail. I'd done eight years. The longest thing I've ever done, I'd done from 1990 to 1998. And I got out uh, in 1998. It was, that was a good night, and um, you know, but um, well celebrated. And um, we um, nearly died of eating a prawn. But um, what happened was um, we. I got out, and, um, and I got a job. I just got straight out. I was a fitness instructor at a Japanese jockey school, of all things. <laughs> And, just, um, just, what on the coast somewhere? Or? Yeah, Cabarita Beach, Cabarita <laughs> Beach, uh, up Northern Rivers there, and uh, I was a fitness instructor there. That one of the Hell's Angels got me the job there, and then um, 
you know, I met the mother of my kids and then we started a telemarketing business. We were selling advertising in magazines that I was, I don't know, some might say I was dodgy. I just say it was legit because everyone got a magazine. Everyone had put an ad in there. We'd done 500 mag- uh, ads. We Everyone got a magazine. So we had a, a, a publishing company and I stayed out of trouble for six years, had two kids, bought a house, done so all that. You, so you were living the suburban life. Was that, was that what was happening here? Your school pickup, yeah, school so- drop off? Yeah, doing all that. And I was, you know, I bought a house like I like I grew up in the western suburbs. There's no beaches in Mount Druitt, and I always wanted to to uh, live near the beach. We bought a house near Corumban Beach there, and you know, I wanted my kids to come up there. And but there was always the underlying of the abuse itself that it, that was perpetrated on me. And until I dealt with that, I was always just putting a band aid on it. You know, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the greatest prime minister that this country's ever seen, I reckon, is Julia Gillard. No one can tell me any different. And I, you know, and I'll, I'll punch on over it. She introduced the Royal Commission Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, and that changed my life. Because yep. what happened from there was I, um, you know, I was afforded proper trauma counselling. I, I got to realise what it was all about and what my behaviours were and what my thinking patterns was, and it allowed me to have genuine remorse for the people who were in the banks of what I'd robbed. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I could tell them I was sorry all day, but I didn't mean it. Yeah. Until I knew what trauma was and my own trauma and how it impacted on me, and, and, and I was riddled with guilt. When I really comprehended what trauma was, the first thing it started to do was riddle me with guilt to, to what I'd done to other people. And that's when I had genuine remorse. Yeah. And, yeah, so you it didn't matter how you know tidy you were keeping it. You were a fitness instructor. You were off the gear. You were yeah, yeah, living on 12, the coach. Twelve and a half years clean I was, you know. And then one day, obviously, as you said, you still hadn't reconciled with a lot of that stuff that had happened to you. I mean, a lot, a lot of stuff, as as it turns out, had happened to you as a young as a young kid. And uh, you know, even in the adult prisons, you said they put you in there prematurely. So, um, you know, there was a lot of abuses, be that abuse of power or just uh, you know abuse. And then you find your way in the prison yard, talking to people. We actually become a problem for the system in a good way. You know, you were a problem for the system when you were robbing banks, but you actually became a problem for the system when you started this advocacy for uh, people in similar positions to you. I, I kind of want to talk about how, you know, once you had identified, um, you know, trauma and, and, and you kind of were working on that, how you go as, you know, someone who's walking in both worlds, someone who is, you know, you've, you're able to talk this stuff that a lot of people would rather bottle up, but you're also, you know, a hard man in the yard, still a prisoner at this point, getting blokes to come forward and join you. For sure. You know what it was? In prison, you've got two, like in, in a lot of prisons, you've got two phones in one yard. So people are communicating with their family. You're in the yard, so there's 60 blokes, 50 blokes in the yard, and everyone knows Johnny's fucking kid, uh, you know, scored three tries in a weekend, and I, you know, the other kid caught three fucking brim on the Tweed River. Everyone knows everyone's business, right? So I'm on the phone, the jail phone, talking to the Royal Commission, Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, and I could see a few ears pricking up. They thought I was up to no good. They thought I was possibly talking to coppers, and um, so I had to call the yard meeting, right? So, I and just want—I just want to talk about this. Sorry, yeah, that, a yard meeting. A yard meeting sounds like a pretty bold thing to do. Like, uh, yeah. How- <laughs> Everyone yeah. in the yard, come up, yeah. listen to me. This is what I'm saying. It's like a union, a toolbox meeting, you know. It's like a toolbox meeting on a building site, you know. I called the yard meeting and um, and I said, you know what? I said, um, you know, I'm not talking to the police because the, the young dickhead kids, like the ones that have got no idea, would, 
you know, the older blokes would say he'd never do that. He'd never be talking to police. But the young ones get sussed and they start whispering. So I said, look, I'm not talking to the police. I'm talking to the Royal Commission about the abuses that happened to me because I'm sick of living like this and I want to fucking make a change. I want to get the appropriate treatment to fucking get over it. And fucking that 60 bucks, I won't say they give me the clap because it wasn't, but they, you know, they, they you know, I mean, it's just one of those things where everyone's, it was really well celebrated. And um, over a period of time, you know, about 60 blokes come to me and told me their story and I'll put them in contact with the right people. And, um, and it was recognised by the Royal Commission that I was a really good advocate, and, you know, and it planted a seed in me because I had lawyers and psychologists and psychiatrists tell me this is what you should do for a living when you get out. And I had a few dreams, like I had a few dreams. I laid in my prison cell and, and I was doing, I was studying, uh, I was doing tertiary prep, which is the equivalent of HSC, and I really sort of thought, you know what, I, 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 the seed was planted in me that I was good at it. I was good at identifying, you know, survivors, um, mate, I was getting these notes come to me. It was like, mate, I want to talk to you out in the Oval. And I was fucking, normally that means someone wants to fight you. So I put the steel cap boots on and um, <laughs> fucking head on out. And then um, and you go out there and I'll make those, mate, and you give me a hug and you'd say, mate, I want to tell you I was abused too. How do I go about doing this? Well, pretty fucking hectic, violent yeah. people were telling me these stories, you know. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I got uh, extradited to New South Wales. I went to New South Wales prison. I had two weeks to go. And the coppers, the beautiful coppers that they are, they waited four years. And oh, I was getting paroled to a rehab. And uh, they waited four years and they charged me with six additional bank robberies before I was getting out. And the um, so what happened, my lawyers seen through it, ended up getting me out on a bail to a rehab up at Coffs Harbour called Adele House. And then... Um, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to have, I'm going to give this a real crack. I, I got offered the general manager's job, seventy grand a year in a Corolla, as the, as the <laughs> at the rehab. They really, because I had more recovery knowledge than anyone that worked in that rehab. I went there four years clean. The reason for me to go to the rehab is I, I needed to learn some living skills. I had none. I didn't know. To, I didn't know. I didn't know how to pay bills. I didn't. Have, I didn't even know how to send an email until three years ago. Yeah. So. I went to the rehab and then I, you know, I got myself a little one bedroom unit on the, the waterfront there at um, Coffs Harbour and I started the voice of a survivor. I, I started with a laptop that I didn't know how to use, but it, it looked good for the photos on Instagram and, um, and Facebook. Um, I got this girl, by this stage I'd had a compensation payout for my abuse claim. So I had a couple of little bucks, to, I had a couple of bucks to sort of st stand me over for a bit and I had this that, girl. Was that the redress scheme? Was that the no, it wasn't, I wouldn't. I, my, I actually, I, I filed. We done a civil claim against, and I, I settled for a pittance. I really settled for a pittance. I, if, if that claim ran today, it'd be two and a half, three million dollars. But I, um, yeah. I settled for a pittance just because I just wanted it over and done with, and I wanted to get on with my life. And um, so yeah, I set up and um, started on a, with a laptop computer on my barbecue table. I, my first employee was some woman who turned up and done a chakra reading and put the crystals all around us and and. Um, she loves Harbour hippie. Yeah, she, she brought the incense. Mate, when she wasn't very good at what she did, but um, and then we we got the ball rolling. Uh, you know, and today we employ twelve people. We've got fifteen thousand eight hundred clients. We got we work with thirty eight different law firms nationally. Just went to Perth last week. Signed up one hundred and twenty clients in five days over there. Right. So this is an advocacy group you've you, you've basically created. I mean, when we talk about the justice system. There's a lot of conversations that people don't want to have, you know. Maybe a lot of these blokes could do better in in, in a uh, mental health facility. A lot of these blokes could do this and that, you know. A lot of these blokes, uh, we'd have a better chance of understanding if we looked into what happened to them. Uh, you know, as you said, Julie Gillard at least made that call. Do you find 
you're becoming an inconvenience for a system of do-gooder politicians? Oh, in Queensland. Queensland's the home. J.B. Occupy-Peterson is alive and well in Queensland. Mm-hmm. I can tell you the spirit of that bloke's running through the veins of that joint. Like in yeah. far as, as far as, you know, making decisions, and they tried shutting us down over up there. They, they, had, a, uh, they had an inquiry recently and they said, fucking mate, we never had a chance to respond to nothing. But we're not finished there. But um, Queensland is a, but not necessarily, I'll tell you, like, you know, New South Wales are really good respondents. They, they welcome it. Justice Garling at the Supreme Court is, is a big fan of what we do and he makes a lot of decisions out and he, and he often gives us praise for the, what we do. And, and, you know, and I think that the judges are seeing, you know, the last, when, I, when I fronted up on those charges, those six robbery charges, oh, and, and, and this is something I'd like to talk about, I, you know, because I was out on bail for 18 months and I had to front up to uh, the district court, Downing Centre District Court on six robbery charges, which I pleaded guilty to. I would have beat four of them, but I just pleaded guilty to get them out of my life. And and the judge was, he said to me, you know, if I was to put you back in prison now, he said, I'd be doing a big disservice to the community because you've now become a community asset through the work that you do. You know, man, that was fucking, man, that, that, that teared me up because I, yeah. I, was, I was described as a scumbag and, and someone who needed to be punished. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was someone who fully comprehended what had happened to me. And he recognised, he said, if the abuse didn't happen to you, you would have mostly been the CEO of a multinational company. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that, um, did you find that now looking back in prison? Like, you know, ever, you hear people talk about prison the way it's, you know, hierarchical and there's all these different trades really within the prison. As you said, the bank robbers when you went in. But do you look, in hindsight, actually maybe, you know, what's the percentage there that you reckon have a similar story to you? I mean, there's there's only so many bad eggs in the world. They can't be filling our prison systems. Seventy percent, I, I reckon it's seventy yep. percent. They have some sort of trauma, whether it's intergenerational, sexual, emotional, physical abuse. I think it has to be. I get contacted. Some of the blokes that contact me, like if I told you their names, it'd blow you away. And they ring me and they say, oh, "I get this call. Will you accept the call from such and such?" I go, "Yeah," and I know what's coming. I go, "Mate, I just want to tell you. You know, I've seen your story. I know what you're doing. I trust you." to tell my story. And I said, mate, well, I'm there with bells on. And it, and it makes sense. The, under, like, the underlying issue of most drug addicts is some sort of abuse. This underlying issue of, of a self-harmer is some sort of trauma abuse. And the underlying issue of someone who has a propensity for violence often is abuse as well. Hmm. And, and do you find that is helping you, this, this kind of skill set you've got and these, these uh, um, abilities, not only, oh, it's obviously helping you in the advocacy, even a judge told you that down in Sydney, uh, you know, when you had the option of locking up for six more charges or letting you, um, you know, enter, re-enter society and, and, and do the work you're doing. But, you know, in this new space you're in where you're, you're interviewing people and, and, you, and you're getting people to share their stories, do you find those skill sets are, you know, being able to identify that and, and be a softer touch? I mean, you've got some big names coming on here. There's obviously people that there's a lot of trust there, Russ. For sure. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, in the first three years of my business, I've done 1,100 trauma interviews. Like I've done 1,100 uh, abuse interviews where people told me the worst the worst of whatever happened to them, you know, from their upbringing to what they aspired to be, to the abuse happening, and then what took place after the abuse. So I think it puts me in good stead, yeah, for sure. And there seems to be an underlying theme of, um, you know, sport and obviously you've got a few high-profile, you know, I guess you'd call underworld figures. A lot of people, um, that that's only the only way to put it because a lot of people will argue against what's been put on their name. 
But, you know, and people across, you know, as you said, Gary Jubilant, you're talking to cops as well now. Yeah. Um, do, do you find it's all one big kind of, you know, world of where, – where, where is the crossover there? Or have you actually – I can't, you, believe, I can't yeah. believe how similar they are. I couldn't believe how similar me and Gary Jubilant were. <laughs> I really couldn't. I was blowing me away. I said, this bloke's telling my story. Like, fucking the shit that he went through. I mean, I went through that too. I'm, I, you know, the similarities are unbelievable. Hmm. And you, you wouldn't like, have said that 10 years ago. Mate, I wouldn't have talked to a copper ten years ago. I wouldn't call. I call Gary Jubilant a mate. There's fucking. Mate, I don't. I have mates that have disowned me for saying it, but it's true. I don't lie. I like the guy. You know, it was funny. A few months. Oh, a few months. About eighteen months ago. Like I'd really got in a bit of a bad space, so I put myself in a health retreat slash rehab. And um, he rings me out of the blue and he goes, mate, are you all right? And I said, what's that? He goes, cop intuition. I said, fuck, I'm glad you weren't chasing me when I was robbing banks. You know what I mean? <laughs> you turn up at your door. <laughs> Don't do it. And he was right. He was yeah. right. I interviewed Keith Banks the other day. I don't know if you know that cop. He, he's, he's a cop from Queensland. He killed two people while – while, oh, no, he killed one and then got two bravery awards for de-escalating a bloke who was strapped up with jelly night. Man, I thought, I fucking felt sorry for what I thought. Fuck, I've been through nothing compared to you. Mm. And do you feel that? Do you, do, you, do you do feel that understanding? I guess, I mean, as you said, 1,100 cases. These aren't podcasts. These are 1,100 interviews with men in jail cells telling you the worst of the worst. Do you, are you starting to see there? It's not cops and robbers anymore. Is that is that what you're saying here? It's like oh no, no, it's definitely not cops and robbers. You know what I mean? For me, it's for me. It's about getting like you know what I mean. It's about getting justice for these people. And I think you know what I've done. Oh man, I've done this interview with ja- that's life, and on the headline, it was a three page lift down. It goes Russell Manser, a crime fighter, and I went, what the fuck? They're taking it too fucking far. <laughs> And, and then I had to read it in its context, and the context was I was helping people do go through the he- healing process, and and, that, and as a result of that, they stopped doing crime and they got on with their lives and started to do productive lives. And I went, oh fucking people could read that the wrong way. But as soon as I read it, I went, these they're throwing me under the bus. Daily <laughs> <laughs> Telegraph all over. Fucking. <laughs> uh, well, mate, it sounds like you've got a lot of um, pans on the stove at the moment. Yeah. Between your advocacy work and obviously your um. And, and your podcast, uh, this, where can they find that? That's the Stick Up podcast. Yeah, on iTunes. Um, it's on Spotify, and we drop one every Tuesday. More so doing. You know what? Next year's an interesting year for me because I'm going back into the prisons and doing staff training. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, let me at them. That's yeah, what I'm right. saying. Well, and I think I can really make a difference. I'm also doing um, prisoner mentoring. You know, I've got a team of people that I'm putting together to take in there to do it. But the staff training thing for me is interesting. My my beautiful partner was asking me, she said, well, what are you going to do? What can you do to make the difference? And I said, well, you know, all right. Then people have got an opportunity. So my question to them is, you've got an opportunity to go in. You can go in there and amplify someone's trauma, be in there, handcuff them and kick them in their head while they're on the ground and do all those horrible things. I said, but have a look at the people that are doing that already. Have a look at their lives. They go home and they're fucking, their wives see them come up the driveway and dread them coming home. The kids go to the bedroom. The dog hides under the house. He jumps in the lounge, rips off a fart and thinks it's the fucking funniest thing that's ever happened. I said, the whole household hates him. And I said, fucking any, you know, because there's a real good story there. You know, I, I, there's a really good story to that. I remember I was at Goulburn Jail, right? 
Yep. This, screw come, this screw comes into my cell and fucking, he was notorious for ripping up your photos of your kids trying to get a reaction out of you. So I just, I fucking give him the best David Attenborough. Um, I'll give him a, <laughs> and here comes the prison officer, notorious for ripping up childhood photos. And, and, <laughs> and um, he, goes, <laughs> he goes home to his wife who hates him, detests him. His children hide in the bedroom and hope that he doesn't breathe on them. And, and I'll, give him this, I'll give him this rundown. I'll say, mate, your kids hate you, your wife hates you, everyone fucking hates you in your life, even your fucking dog hates you, you know? And he's going, yeah, okay, Dr. Phil, okay. And I said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, a few weeks later, he turns up, he's got tears in his eyes, and he goes, mate, you're fucking right. And I went, he said, how do I change it? I said, by just being a fucking decent person. Fucking, <laughs> <laughs> fucking Robert, just, just don't be a prick. <laughs> yeah, just don't be a prick. Start there. <laughs> mate, give old mate his toilet roll. I remember once I went into a fucking, uh, to the, one of their offices, and, um, and, he, and I said, can I get a toilet roll? They're right behind him, and he goes, Come back later. I just ripped his jumper off. I said, I'll bring your jumper back when I'm finished. You know what I mean? Hang on, I have no fucking. But, you know, that's what it all boils down to. You, your job there is to maintain the fucking security of the prison, right? It's not there to kick someone in. That's a fucking act of a. How does that make you any better than the people that you got in prison when you're fucking kicking someone in the head with a set of handcuffs on or skitching a dog and all? I don't get that sort of stuff and re traumatizing people. And man, I can't wait to do the staff training bit. I reckon I can really make a difference. Well, mate, it's a story of recovery, a very stark, uh, you know, very- A million to uh, one shot, a million to one shot, Clancy. Yeah, man, yeah. it is. It's a million to one shot, but if we didn't believe you, you know, the fact that you're mates with cops and training screws uh, is should be the greatest insight into how far you've come from that system. I, did you ever imagine yourself walking back into prison under those circumstances as oh, <laughs> with, with a visitor badge on saying here for staff training? Oh, man. I don't, when I'd done Australian Story, man, that was funny. I went, went into Long Bay and I actually went, to the, went close to the cell where I was abused in um, and walking through the gates and being treated like as an equal. These screws are sticking their hands out to shake my hand. I was like, oh, no, I'm still a bit weary of that. <laughs> this is taking it a bit too far. And then, um, but I went through and my mates, a mate of mine, Luke Grant's the assistant commissioner of corrective services. He used to be a school teacher and I used to be his clerk and he progressed all the way to assistant commissioner. And he really believed in me. He was one of those people that always said, mate, you're going to be better than this one day. And here we are, you know, and then, um, he, he was the one who approved a strange story to go into Long Bay. And it was really funny, you know, these people just, and I, I got to talk to a few inmates and tell a bit about my story. And then um, and at lunchtime, the screw said, mate, it's time for lunch. I said, fuck, mate, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not eating this jail food, you know? <laughs> and um, and, and, um, and as, a pun, as punishment, anyway, we went to the this big smorgasbord of food and, Fucking mate, and he said, "Oh, I left my phone in his desk." He goes, "Oh, it's in the top desk," and fucking went in there. It was like a fucking pistol in there. I go, "Oh, what the fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> All these responsibilities here would be given. But they're, they're, at the end of that Australian story, we done this scene right. And we're walking out the gate, so I have to go. You know, as you know, they cut it about eight times. So I'm walking out the gate. And they said, oh, we're really sorry of that. We'll just get a few more takes. And I said, mate, we can do this all day. It's like being released 27 times, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, spent, you spent that long thinking about it. You, you may as well do it 27 oh, times. It. Yeah. I can do that. I could go back there for a week and do that and feel cathartic, <laughs> you know? But um, And life's good, yeah. you know? Life's so good. You know what? I, I say this. I live by a motto and it says, you know, I give more than I take and I don't go without, you know? And um that's what it's all about. I think I found my true calling in life when I'm of service to others and if I can share my story and, 
and change lives. Like me and my girl, we got pulled down to some, I get pulled into it all the time. Like uh, someone's got a, a wayward, uh, you know, teenager, go and have a chat to them. And, and you know, and the social media presence and, the, and that sort of stuff, it's given me um, a credibility. And this kid, we walked in, he goes, oh, mate, I follow everything you're doing. And I said, well, here, mate, I'm here to tell you, man, like what you're doing, you're treating your mum like a shit bag. And, you know, I'm going to take that kid out tomorrow and fucking spend a bit of time with him because a lot of these young... I'll tell you something now. A lot of the problem they're talking about youth crime is fucking shit parents, you know? Mm. That's yeah. where the answer yeah. is. Don't worry about locking the kids up. Lock the fucking parents up. They're the problem. Mm. Not always. Not always. And I'm not saying that because my, cause people could have said that about my parents and my parents weren't shit parents. But, you know, having, creating mentors for these kids, you know what I mean? Like, man... Yeah. I, I do a lot of it unpaid and I I don't want to get paid for it because it's so rewarding watching these kids turn their lives around, you know? People always put a lot of value around street smarts. Obviously, you've got a lot of that and you've probably had it since a very early age. But do you think there are, there in, in the whole street smarts, you know, people talk about billionaires have street smarts. You know, Kerry Packer mm. actually had street smarts. Mm. Do you think there is something lacking in this concept of street smarts in terms of, these things, these themes you're now working with, these, these, you know, you can be the most street smart bloke in the world, but you don't cry, you know, you don't know, you can't identify these things. Do, do, do you think there's a little bit of that too? I think, you know, I think that whole concept of not crying, not showing emotion, not telling people how you feel, that's why men are committing suicides in record numbers, isn't it? You know what I mean? Mm. That's the crazy bit. What I, I think I, what I learned through trauma counselling was that's okay to feel like that and it's okay to express that stuff and you know and and there's people that you can express yourself to i think we live in a playstation generation of kids and they're fucking and i you know you know i've got a 21 year old that's wayward too and it's really hard because he'll listen to my friends but won't listen to me yeah so you know just getting through to them because it's the know-it-all generation that's the problem yeah. with these kids it's really fucking hard to get through to me because they they know it all you know and um Lived experience, man. That, you know, that's what, what it's all about. I think a corrective service, in particular, corrective services, New South Wales, and I think Michael Cooch, Trotter, Tanya Plebisek's husband, has got a bit to say with it, bringing people in with lived experience. Yep. Yeah. What about the PhD fucking, fucking criminologist or whatever? Fuck him. Yeah. You know, with his fat fingers and fat wallet. Yeah. Forget him. Bring in someone who really knows. Bring in people with runs on the board, like myself, like Jeff Morgan, I mean, I can think of yeah. a heap. Jeffrey John Amato, I can, you know, some really good people who have been through that whole system. Know that, like, I talk about this. I say, I've got a blueprint how to do this. I've got a blueprint how to turn this. I'll give it to you for free, but yeah. don't waste it because it's a fucking gift. Mm. Well, you're doing some good work there, Russ, and um, and we're really loving uh, all these interviews you've got coming out each week. Um, so you, you, you've got Danny Green next week. You guys. Yeah. I've got um, Shannon O'Connor. I've got Shannon O'Connor. We're going to let release hers close to the Ebony, Ebony Bridges fight. We yeah. got Jeff Fennick. We got um, my, one of my old favourites, Abo Henry, Graham Henry. Yeah. I oh, mean, I, I love this challenge. I just love. It's like finding these people. I'm telling you, I'll, 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 we might have to come back and talk. I've got Mike Tyson in my sights, and I reckon I can get him from my podcast. Yep. Yeah, you yep. can get him. You, you, know get him. Get him. you know how I'll get him. I'll get him through Jeff Fennick. And Jeff Fennick said to me, anything I can do for you? And I said, fucking be careful what you fucking offer. <laughs> <laughs> anything yeah. I can do for you, Russ? Yeah, let's go to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, let's go. You know, I love to do that. I think, you know, I just, because, I mean, I'll tell you, I, 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 he's a funny guy, isn't he? It's like Ben Cousins is another one we're, we've got, we're, we're talking to at the moment. And ben Cousins and Mike Tyson, there's similarities because everyone wanted to see, they've got countries behind them, backing them, wanting to see them do well. Mm. 
Like, yeah. And cousins, everyone's going, oh, mate, you can do it, you can do it. It's like, you know, watching a kid get up to walk for the first time, getting clean, yeah. and apparently he's clean and doing really well, you know. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. yeah, that is something. Ben Cousins is an interesting one in that there's a general consensus among the communities. Like, let's just, you know, it's it's not funny to make jokes about the Benders anymore. You know, yeah. it's not funny to talk about everything he went through. Everyone just wants to see him get better, particularly yeah. over there in WA. Yeah. It's like Greeny. Yeah, well, Greeny's a god over there, mate. He, and he'd love to see <laughs> Danny him. Green. You know, so just a quick one with that. I said to Greeny, like, mate, you go over there with him, and it's like fucking, it's like the parting of the Red Sea when he walks up the footpath, and um, <laughs> and um, and everyone wants to. And, and I said, mate, you could be the premier over. And he goes, mate, he goes, you know, the problem is, he said, I can't tell lies, and to be a politician, you just got to be a good bullshit artist. He said, yeah, no, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, he'd be a good boxing promoter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Russ. Um, we're looking forward to all these interviews, and um, we'll see you around the traps. Be that and. On the Gold Coast or, or, or in Batuta, mate. I'd love to get down to Batuta, mate. I've heard plenty. Of, I'm right in on my. Um, I've got a big. I've got. I own a horse. I own a really nice horse. So I'll have to bring her down. I'll have to bring her up there sometime. Yeah, yeah. We'll put her on the on the dirt track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. No worries. Take care, guys. Thank you.